Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Combat Veteran Breakdown Podcast. This is going to be a video that I think a lot of people aren't really talking about, right? An issue that we sort of discuss perhaps only in general terms, but no one really breaks down what that means. What I'm talking about, of course, is the cost of war. Now, everybody with a functioning brain knows that war costs a lot of a lot it costs lives it costs uh buildings cities things that are destroyed right but what is the actual economic costs of a war to a society well the answer is actually something that is a question that economists have struggled with for a long time but i'm going to try to break down and help you guys maybe understand some of the perspectives that inform sort of how we think about the costs of a war. Now, there's a myth out there, right? And it's pretty heavily perpetuated uh, by, mm, I mean, it's, it's pretty deeply entrenched here in the U.S. of the war technology conversion myth. That's the idea that the military invests in these uh, experimental technologies and that once the military has funded them and the research is complete and it's implemented, then they trickle down to civilian applications. Uh, one example might be something like uh, nuclear power, right? The military in the Second World War, the U.S. invested heavily in a uh, nuclear weapon, an atomic bomb in that case, and that that research uh, matured the nuclear kind of fission, com controlled fission, or in the bomb's case, uncontrolled fission, enough that it was able to be implemented as a source of steady, consistent, clean power. Which, by the way, it is, and if you want to go greener and fortunately you've got this reality you've got to have nuclear power to provide steady state power supplies but that's neither here nor there now that sort of war economy is a myth right or rather it's true but there's a larger reality that's obfuscated and this is a concept that is backed by a lot of economic uh, researchers, and it's called the broken window fallacy. Or another way to think of it is what's called opportunity cost. So the broken window fallacy is simply an economic theory that holds that when you, the example is break a window. Let's say you're walking down the street of your downtown and you suddenly feel a sociopathic urge take you and you throw a rock through the nearest window and you take off. No one catches you, no one sees you, um, but now there's a broken window. And you may go back to the scene of the window uh, a day later and find a hubbub of economic activity. A, you know, crowd is gathered around the store looking at it, tut-tutting. Uh, a, you know, glazier, a glass person is, you know, repairing the glass, right? Someone else has bought, they've bought plywood at the local uh, hardware store to put it up uh, to cover the window temporarily. Uh, so you may think, wow, a lot of economic activities, a street sweeper is out sweeping the streets. I don't know why this analogy is set in like 1940s, a street sweeper. But the point is, is that destruction can appear to create economic activity, right? Where there was nothing being done, 
to that window, right? It was a, it was paid, bought and paid for. Now there was economic exchange happening around it. People, workers receiving money, etc. But the reason that is a fallacy is because that money that's spent and really resources spent repairing that window are crowded out by other, are crowding out other activity. For example, maybe that shop owner was saving up money to rent his neighbor's uh, storefront, right? So that he could expand his shop. But now that money is being delayed, brought back, which what should have been growing economic activity is now being spent just to maintain the status quo. Similarly, the uh, window repair person who is installing the window, yes, they're making money, but Perhaps someone else would have stood to make money that would have been put to a better societal use. Again, maybe that landlord that uh, the shopkeeper is going to rent from would have then taken that money and constructed a whole new building in the downtown, right? That could then be rented out, growing the economy writ large. And this is sort of the trade-offs that economists talk about when they talk about the broken window fallacy, is that it's sucking up resources from a society to rebuild when those resources should be put towards growing the society or growing the economy. Okay. The other way to think about this is a concept that I've talked about in other videos, but I think you absolutely have to understand on like a personal level and on an economic level, and that is opportunity cost. Opportunity cost means that to choose path A, you give up path B, right? The classic one that I always use is the cost of a university education here in the United States. Private universities, $60,000 a year, right? So you have to pay out 60000 but that's not the entire cost. There's also the opportunity cost. What is the best job you could get at in, if you worked full-time instead of going to school? Maybe that job would earn you, let's say, $25,000 a year. So you have the, the you know sticker cost, so to speak, of 60000 for a university education, plus the other 25,000 you get, you have to give up from doing the next most productive thing with your time. Let's be honest though, we're all sort of degenerates here. We're, we're on YouTube. Uh, we would just be playing video games. But in this day and age, you can make some money playing video games. In fact, you should follow me, twitch.tv slash combatvetpaul, where I engage in this level of gaming degeneracy. Actually, it's mostly just live reactions. So come by, hang out. It's fun. So we've talked about the concept of an opportunity cost. Now let's look at what this war is costing, for example, Russia or Ukraine, right? These are all going to be examples that apply to both. Obviously, Russia being condemned by the economic, by the larger global community uh, has made them an economic pariah because of sanctions, and it has slowed their economy's ability to uh, sustain activity. Some of the key drivers of the, their economy, such as the sale of natural gas and oil, have ground to a halt, meaning that every other downstream effect uh, is now being dried up, is now collapsing essentially before our eyes and this can be on a national level for example their central bank doesn't have the foreign currency reserves to prop up the ruble for example because they don't sell oil uh, or you have smaller stuff for example the 
shop that sells uh borscht no wait borscht is hungarian what would it vodka that's that's the national dish uh that sells vodka to uh russian oil workers is gonna shut down because they can't because the oil workers simply aren't working anymore right so at the micro and macro level that these sanctions are crushing russia but let's talk about war in a broader sense first off who fights wars unfortunately it is generally young men but importantly uh in the modern era it is healthy it is healthy adults who are of working age often young but not necessarily militaries involve people of all almost all ages uh at least between 18 and say 60 at least in the u.s military so you're talking about a lot of productive working capacity right and these are almost all people who are screened for things that would otherwise prevent them from working to uh working as much as they might like to for example serious medical illnesses or uh mental health struggles right so you have the health some of the healthiest working people of your population and especially when it's young people right you take these 19 to 25 year olds and you take them away from whatever they would be doing right so they maybe have been going planning on going to college getting into a trade starting a job right working and you divert them into the military right where instead of engaging in productive activity you actually just have them expending resources right uh you know there is no economic gain from launching say an artillery shell or uh you know driving a a fuel truck up and down a ukrainian road until someone shoots you the reason is that broken window fallacy right destroying a building in mariupol is not productive economic activity it just plain isn't and especially when it happens outside of your country right yes it may appear that there's some sort of uh shell game at work where you go oh a russian arms manufacturer technically got paid for producing that shell who paid a worker that but remember there's always a better use for this money and it's not going towards something that's actually developing their economy all that to say right the same is also true of these workers themselves they have lost their next best opportunity and things get even worse when you think about the casualties remember that 19 year old right they let's say their career trajectory would have been to study at university uh work for 30 years right uh and then retire with their pension well if that 19 year old is killed or horribly wounded right that entire future uh, economic contribution that they might have made to your country has just vanished it's disappeared and that means you have potentially erased 30 working years from a person now multiply that by the 15 probably by the time this goes live that number will be like 20 uh 20 000 young capable people who have been killed right uh you end up in this sort of you end up losing thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of individual working years in which people can contribute to their their society right contribute in an economic way now 
the other thing we need to talk about is the larger meta pictures about around war. Yes, individual soldiers, certainly, but there's other things that happen too. You notice that the Russian military has spent a lot of money trying to upgrade their troops' weapons, their arsenal. Obviously, they have not succeeded. There's some sort of either corruption or tremendous trade-offs that many of Russia's top tier or uh, things that were marketed as top tier are not really delivering i.e their t72 b3 for example is a main battle tank that just really hasn't delivered the t72 is old uh, extremely out of date and the chassis is is pretty rough and yes there are some sort of electronic upgrades but it appears that the vast majority are operating in tanks <laughs> takes that literally appear to have been taken straight out of the 1980s and some may be operating in tanks that are even older than that all that to say right the russian government for example has spent a lot of money on outfitting new tanks new gear new weapons or just old weapon keeping old weapons running and this is a tremendous amount of what's called crowding out Crowding out is the term for when a government's money that presumably is meant to be invested in their country in ways that are productive. Uh, and this can take all sorts of forms, including things you may not think about. Conventionally, we think about the government as saying, okay, I have a million dollars. I can spend it on fixing the potholes so that people can get to work safely without destroying their cars, or I can spend it on a new combat aircraft. And when a government chooses to spend it on a new combat aircraft, it means that there's not a, you know, that your roads have more potholes, or that your schools are less well-funded, or that, you know, take your pick, your police force is less professional and underpaid, right? You have these sort of problems that you rely on government investment uh, that create conditions for economic success. Or sometimes the government spending directly creates economic success by investing in important technologies. For example, a government may say, take that million dollars and say, hey, we know you want to build a new wind farm near your house, or you want to uh, open a business in an economically underdeveloped area. The government can step in and say, we'll give you some of this million dollars, either in the form of tax breaks or literally as a grant to just put you over the edge so that this sort of risky business decision now becomes just a little bit more profitable, right? Now it will look profitable because you won't have to worry so much about taxes. This sort of investment uh, is can be tremendously productive for an economy if done properly. And when you have to buy, instead have to divert your tax dollars to buying outright uh, tank parts, right? You make these massive trade-offs to your economy, especially in the long term. So Russia's had to do that for decades just to maintain its military of this size. And you can see it hasn't delivered any real value to them. Russia, there is no doubt, Russia has spent a lot of its money on this military and it's gotten them very little. It's gotten them a military that's barely running. Imagine what they would have done if they instead were able to divert that tax dollars to, for example, uh, 
you know, incentivizing investments in uh, companies, companies headquartering in Moscow, right? Uh, or developing uh, first class universities, right? That can produce their own next generation of programmers. If, if Moscow had done these things and simply said, hey, we accept that we are not going to have 12,000 modern tanks. We're going to have about a thousand modern tanks or twice as many tanks as uh, our next regional rival. And we're just going to have that. We're just going to maintain that, maintain a small but high quality Navy and maintain a small but high quality nuclear uh, force. Then a lot more money would have been freed up to invest and grow the country. Now, obviously, the other problem you get into is that... <laughs> A lot of that money might have ended up lining the pockets of oligarchs. A lot of that money probably did end up lining the pockets of corrupt Russian leadership. But one, some would have filtered down. And even if it had ended up lining their pockets, it's still a more productive economic use than literally blowing it up, which is what you do when you, which is what Russia has done when it's purchased all these tanks. It's just literally blown them up in Ukraine with extra steps. So instead, if an oligarch, for example, used it to build himself a palace outside Moscow, that at least is putting jobs into the economy, creating a building. Yes, it's not the best use. It's it's so unproductive. It's almost a broken window. But at least you're producing some sort of building, uh, some sort of infrastructure instead of literally producing just the burnt out wreckage of a tank. The other, so this is, and a lot of people will point to other uh, military technologies that get developed and say, well, look, the military invented X. Uh, the classic one is, of course, the internet and ARPANET. And it's true. The military spent massively to develop a, a, compu a linked computer system that could communicate. But what's really important is that while this technology was pretty nascent, uh, nascent? nascent uh when arpa funded it and it funded it to a, the tune of a lot of money first off this operation arpa or, or arpanet was uh civilian dr driven first off second it was not the the people doing that research had a lot of their research and their activities actually classified and there were individuals in Canada, in the UK, who were also looking at linking computer systems, and they weren't able to share much of their information with US, uh, US ARPANET researchers, right? So the government's classification system impeded it. The other thing that's important to remember is ARPANET is not actually what the internet was based on. ARPANET was sort of a trial run, and it wasn't until the 90s that ARPANET actually was able to implement its, or that there was a decentralized internet as we think of it today. And the question is, did ARPANET actually create the internet, or did it crowd out researchers who should have been building a commercial internet and instead divert them into this military internet? Another argument like we talked about, right? Controlled fission, a controlled fission reaction was pioneered in the 1930s before the Second World War. And in the Second World War, when it broke off, broke out, the U.S. basically recruited all these nuclear research scientists, put them together in the Manhattan Project, spent a lot of money, 
but it dedicated it towards making a bomb. And they successfully did so, but only after that massive investment did they then look back and say, what are some peacetime applications of this nuclear fission? And the question is, by the time it finally cycled back around and was being used for nuclear reactors, did you really get the technology out faster in ways that were productive? Again, we can all acknowledge the atomic bomb, while important to winning the war, well, it wasn't really important to winning the war, but while important militarily, we'll say, uh, it didn't actually, there's no evidence that it got uh, nuclear power plants to market faster. Similarly, there's no evidence that creating ARPANET and investing massively in this government program actually got the commercial internet up and running faster. And obviously, a robust internet infrastructure is a massive social gain. It's a massive driver of economic activity. But did ARPANET actually speed up its implementation? It was decades from the development of, of the classified ARPANET to the implementation of a World Wide Web that we can log into. Uh, so you can make a similar argument potentially with computers, right? The By the time computers were actually in the public economy available for businesses and research firms to use and rent time on and do, well, computing, um, it's not clear that the government's investment in developing wartime computing machines actually sped up the rollout. And the argument when people talk about crowding out, this is what they're talking about. Uh, there are programs, uh, da, 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 let me see. Uh, there are, nah, there are some programs that will actually swoop in and find people developing technologies in the private sector that have national security impl implementations. And they will scoop those up and kind of say, hey, we want you to actually pause on getting your technology to market uh, while we look into the national security um, implementation of this. We, we want the, the, you know, basically DARPAnet comes in and says, hey, we're going to help you develop this. In exchange for this money, though, you can't bring it to market. You can't let it contribute to the economy at large. It's got to go into national security. And this is this is not a economically productive call. And again, this isn't my way of saying that national security isn't important. It is. But you have to understand that you make trade-offs when you do this. And those trade-offs can be tremendous because the ability of the market generally to find novel uses for things supersedes anything that a centrally directed government can. Look at your phones, right? A lot of this, these nanotechnologies obviously are awesome in the military, but there is no military smartphone with apps now, right? A smarter military or a different military might sit there and say, here's a smartphone with all the standard functionality and we're going to give you apps if you're a tank driver we'll give you a tank navigation app if you're a uh, apache gunner we're going to give you a armament app right there's so many different things that the free market has done really well uh that the military just can't because it's it's centralized it's a centralized thinking anyway guys all this to say
You should understand that when you have a war, there are tremendous economic costs at every single level, from the lives of the privates all the way to, to investments that will pay off for, to drive an economy decades ahead. You know, at every level, war is a destructive, destructive entity. And the fact that it Russia has voluntarily entered into one uh, is just beyond the pale, right? And trust me, I also acknowledge the U.S. is guilty of this. You know, you may have noticed there's not been a lot of technology that's come out of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars that have helped us individuals, right? There's some argument about maybe drone technology, but commercial drones look nothing like military drones. And it's really, to me, important to understand and see that $3 trillion was spent on Iraq and Afghanistan, wars of choice but for the U.S. And I think we are seeing a lot of that lack of investment in the public sector. That should have happened, right? Would we have a better funded CDC and public health authorities if we hadn't spent trillions of dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Potentially. Would we have better schools, better potholes? Would... Uh, other technologies be more robust almost certainly so and that is if it's a certainty here in the united states it's doubly certain in a country like russia where the need for economic development is greater and a larger share of their budget has gone to the military anyway guys thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast if there's topics you want me to cover just let me know in the comments and until next time i'll see you guys later